Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a 15-year-old, a boy with hypotension and bradycardia. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A 15-year-old male presents to the PICU after sustaining an acute trauma. The patient was brought to the emergency room by his father after being on a boat and lifting a heavy object. He did not fall, sustain any head or extremity trauma, but did feel an achy, non-radiating back pain shortly after the event. His grandmother states that the patient kept complaining about the back pain And over the next few hours, the patient became increasingly fatigued and flushed in the face. The patient was able to move his arms and legs and still walk. However, family became concerned when the patient had abdominal fullness and was unable to urinate properly. He presents to the emergency department for further evaluation. In the emergency department, he is noted to be awake, however, intermittently sleepy. His vital signs are notable for a heart rate of 58 beats per minute and a blood pressure of 85 over 60. He has three out of five motor strength in his lower extremities with decreased sensation in his feet. Patellar reflexes are one plus bilaterally. Rectal tone is normal. And the acute resuscitation effort is begun for this patient. So Rahul, To summarize key elements from this case, this patient has an acute trigger, back pain, viral sign instability, and lower motor neuron signs, all of which bring up the concern for a spinal cord injury. Now let's transition and discuss some history and physical exam components of this presentation. Rahul, what are the key history features in a child who presents with hypotension and bradycardia? That's a great question, Pradeep. As our worry is primarily a spinal cord etiology, you would want to ask about trauma. This could be blunt or penetrating trauma. You also would like to ask about the nature of the injury and the scene at which the injury actually occurred. It is especially important to inquire with the pre-hospital providers such as EMS about the nature of the injury and the patient course in transport. Besides our normal airway breathing and circulation, It is important to ask the care taken regarding spinal cord restriction during transport. Did the patient have a cervical collar or were they placed on a backboard? Another high-yield history component when you think about hypotension and bradycardia is to assess for numbness, weakness, or changes in bowel or bladder habits. In this case, the patient had abdominal fullness, which may be due to bladder dysfunction. Now, this is a great summary of key history findings for patients who present with hypotension and bradycardia as it relates to acute spinal cord issues. Remember that patients who have Down syndrome may have a predilection to have laxed ligaments, especially in the upper vertebrae. As a result, you should have an increased index of suspicion if a Down syndrome patient presents with hypotension and bradycardia, just like this patient, in the presence or absence of trauma. In a study published in 2017 in neurocritical care, it was estimated that about 20% of patients with trisomy 21 may have atlantoaxial instability. Now, another important consideration here 
is to remember that when you approach hypotension and bradycardia, it is increasingly important to focus on cardiac etiologies. Physiologically, bradycardia directly pulls down the cardiac output, potentially causing a shock-like picture. When you have bradycardia, and especially a blunted vasoconstrictor response, you can couple bradycardia with hypotension. Now, I do not want to delve too much out of the scope of today's episode, but there is a wide differential for bradycardia, but specifically, you should consider in the history an intoxication as a cause of bradycardia and hypotension. This includes intoxication from beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, as well as central alpha-2 agonists such as clonidine or guanfacine. Going back to our case, Pradeep, are there some red flag symptoms or physical exam components which you could highlight when you approach this patient? Yes. In the patient who we suspect uh, has a spinal cord injury, uh, we should perform a very comprehensive neurological exam. Uh, motor strength should be tested, especially in the lower extremities. Key muscle group should be tested to determine level of injury. The knee extensors, as we know, at L3, uh, whereas the triceps and biceps can be assessed at C5 and C7. On physical exam, uh, this patient has a flushed face, and this could be related to an interruption of the sympathetic chain uh, causing a Horner syndrome-like presentation. And if we recall, Horner syndrome is a triad of uh, ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, which can present as facial flushing. During the spinal cord assessment, it is important to perform a rectal exam to check for perianal sensation and rectal tone. If at least one is normal in the acute setting, this suggests a sacral sparing injury and does an incomplete injury with potential for some motor recovery. Other physical exam components include assessing for priapism in male patients. Priapism in male patients may present from abrupt loss of sympathetic tone to pelvic vasculature causing a high flow arterial priapism. This is a great review of history and physical components for hypotension and bradycardia as a presentation of spinal cord injury. I think the key point here is to remember that this presentation is related to a loss of sympathetics and thus unopposed vagal tone, which leads to the acute symptomatology of distributive shock with hypotension and bradycardia. So Rahul, to continue with our case, the patient's labs were consistent with a blood gas that showed metabolic acidosis, a lactic acid of 4.6 milligram per deciliter. Uh, the coagulation panel and basic metabolic panel were completely normal. EKG was notable for sinus bradycardia with no evidence of heart block. I would also like listeners to note that in patients with high cervical spinal cord injuries, the presence of hypercarbia on your blood gas suggesting hypoventilation may prompt us to consider early intubation. Pradeep, what did the imaging show in this patient? We sent the patient for a, a CT scan only once the patient was deemed to be stable. And what the CT scan showed was a T2 spinal cord injury. There was also an associated T5 vertebral fracture. Interesting. This may have been related to the trauma which we got in history. Remember, listeners, that CT is very sensitive for defining bone fractures in the spine. Because CT is more sensitive than plain films, patients who are suspected to have a spinal cord injury and have normal plain films should also undergo CT. CT also has advantages over plain films 
in assessing the patency of the spinal canal. CT also provides some assessment of the paravertebral soft tissues and perhaps of the spinal cord as well. But all of this is inferior to MRI, the disadvantage here being that MRI does take longer. Okay, Rahul, to summarize, we have a 15-year-old male who presents after trauma with hypotension, bradycardia, facial flushing, and bladder dysfunction. This brings up the concern for spinal or neurogenic shock, the topic of our discussion today. Let us start with a multiple choice question. After a motor vehicle accident, a 16-year-old male presents with a heart rate of 50 and a mean arterial pressure of 45. The patient is obtunded, gurgling, and resuscitation efforts are begun. His hypotension does not improve with fluid resuscitation. A diagnosis of neurogenic shock is suspected. Stimulation of which of the following receptors is most likely to benefit this patient acutely? A. Nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. B. Muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. C. Vasopressin 2 receptors. Or D. Alpha 1 receptors. Rahul, the correct answer is D. Alpha 1 receptors. Remember, patients with neurogenic shock are devoid of sympathetics. Thus, you want to initiate sympathomimetics early. Some patients may even require continuous infusion of norepinephrine, phenylephrine, or even dopamine. The idea here is to increase the sympathetic tone by stimulating the alpha-1 receptors. As you think about our case, what would be your differential? I think, first of all, I would make a distinction between uh, conus medullaris syndrome and corda equina syndrome. To start, the conus medullaris is the terminal end of the spinal cord. If damaged, these children will have upper motor neuron weakness. They may have impaired sphincter control early and disturbances in urination. Older children may be able to communicate a feeling of settle anesthesia. Pradeep, what about cauda equina syndrome? Great question, Rahul. So the cauda equina is the lumbar and sacral roots caudal from the conus medullaris. These patients are going to have multiple nerves affected and may also have progressive incontinence. In fact, studies have shown that finding of urinary retention post-void residual of more than 100 to 200 ml has 90% sensitivity for detecting corda equina syndrome. A key distinction between the two is that corda equina syndrome in general has an asymmetric weakness with primarily lower motor neuron signs. Patients are going to have urinary retention that presents later from the onset of injury. Okay, to summarize, conus medullaris syndrome, you damage the spinal cord. Think early onset of bowel and bladder dysfunction with upper motor neuron signs. This is in contrast to cauda equina syndrome, where you have more damage of peripheral nerve roots and, in general, will have lower motor neuron signs as well as progressive incontinence. Rahul, I have also heard a term uh, called skivora. What is this clinical entity called skivora? So skivora, which stands for S-C-I-W-O-R-A, is an acronym that means spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. In the pediatric population, this differential is greater concern due to laxity of ligaments and weaker muscles. In this disorder, there is no discernible fracture on conventional films or CT scans, 
However, patients may have underlying spinal cord injury or an exam consistent with neurological deficits. The mechanism for spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality is transient subluxation, stretching, or vascular compromise that imaging cannot detect. Rahul, finally, let's contrast neurogenic shock with spinal shock. This is a subtle distinction clinically, but has been described in the literature. Can you shed some light on that, Rahul? Absolutely. So let's talk about spinal shock first. Spinal shock is a syndrome with a temporary loss of neurological function and tone below a level of an acute lesion. Spinal shock presents as flaccid paralysis, loss of sensation, loss of deep tendon reflexes, and urinary bladder incontinence. Spinal reflexes often return in a predictive manner with the reflexes in the genital region among the first to reappear. Spinal shock, when accompanied by hemodynamic compromise and loss of vasomotor tone, is generally going to be known as neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock typically occurs in patients with the T5 injury and above, however, can be seen in any lesion throughout the spinal cord. If our history, physical, and diagnostic investigations have led us to a neurogenic shock related to acute traumatic spinal injury in this patient as our diagnosis, what would be your general management framework for this patient, Rahul? That's a great question. And I would like to highlight that we have made a key theme today regarding the interruption of autonomic pathways in the spinal cord, causing decreased vascular resistance and bradycardia. Again, it's a loss of sympathetic tone. As your management, you should be focused on resuscitation as well as reinitiation of sympathetic tone in the form of vasopressors. Remember that patients with traumatic spinal cord injury may also suffer from hemodynamic shock related to blood loss and other complications. So you're playing a fine balance between vasomotor tone as well as crystalloid or colloid resuscitation. Remember, an adequate blood pressure is believed to be critical in maintaining adequate perfusion to the injured spinal cord and thereby limiting secondary ischemic injury to the spinal cord. Bradycardia caused by cervical spinal cord or high thoracic spinal cord disruption may require external pacing or administration of atropine. However, in studies, atropine has not been shown to completely reverse neurogenic shock hence why you should focus on vasopressor use. Rahul, what about steroid use in spinal cord injuries? Pradeep, this is a great topic. So methylprednisone is the only treatment that has been suggested in clinical trials to improve neurological outcomes in patients with acute, non-penetrating traumatic spinal cord injury. However, the evidence is limited and its use is debated. So let's go into this a little bit. In animals' experiments, administration of glucocorticoids after a spinal cord injury was found to reduce edema, prevent intracellular potassium depletion, and actually improve neurological recovery. This was especially true when steroids were administered within the first eight hours after injury. However, in 2013, based on the available guidance, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons stated that the use of glucocorticoids in acute spinal cord injury is not recommended. 
Further studies have found that the use of glucocorticoids in this setting actually appears to be declining. Let us focus on management of uh, vasopressors in this condition. As mentioned previously, vasopressors should be considered in cases of neurogenic shock, especially if there's failure to respond to crystalloid and no alternative diagnosis is given for the hypotension. Your go-to agents are going to be those that have alpha-1 activity to re-establish vasomotor tone. Norepinephrine or phenylephrine are your medications of choice in this setting. We have to be careful that phenylephrine may sometimes cause reflex bradycardia, that this is a pure alpha-1 agonist. In terms of prognosis, Pradeep, adult studies have cited that 10 to 20% of patients with spinal cord injuries do not survive to even hospitalization. So what about recovery in our patients? Well, most recovery starts within the first few weeks and plateaus in the first three to six months. Better prognosis for ambulation include younger age, decreased severity of impairment, incomplete injury, and a lower level of injury, typically below T5. This is a great time for us to highlight the multidisciplinary effort that goes into caring for these children. It is important in the acute setting to work closely with neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, the neurologists, the critical care team, and further in the subacute setting involving the rehabilitation team. Leading causes of death in children with spinal cord injury are respiratory conditions and pneumonia, so working closely with a speech therapist for oromotor function is imperative in the management of these kids. I would advise trainees and anyone interested uh, to consider reading Chapter 34 entitled Shock States in the Furman and Zimmerman Textbook of Pediatric Critical Care to review the hemodynamic pattern seen in our discussion of neurogenic shock. All right, let's summarize today's episode. Key objective takeaways. Point number one, neurogenic shock is a loss of sympathetic tone due to a thoracic spinal cord injury. This usually will cause children to present with bradycardia and hypotension. Remember, our normal viewpoint of hypotension is typically hypotension and tachycardia, but these patients are going to have bradycardia and hypotension. Second point is that diagnosing and managing spinal cord injuries is a multidisciplinary approach. And keep your index of suspicion high if these patients have progressive hypotension or dysautonomia or even neurological deficits despite their CT scan or x-ray being initially negative. Finally, use of norepinephrine to reestablish vasomotor tone is a hallmark for management. This concludes our episode on neurogenic shock. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management card. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by myself, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.